This idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the words, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Law School Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld, and I'll be your host, and we're really excited to have you for our second season of programming. We had a great first run, and we're really excited to be back. And with a new feature, we are back in person, in an in-person studio, with a new host. So, Zach Austin, bon voyage, congratulations, and, and enjoy your life now in Decatur, Georgia. But Rob Capitolupo is the new incoming president of the Yale Law School Federalist Society, and he'll be joining us as our new host. Rob, good to have you. Good to be here, John. Rob, why don't you just tell folks about your past? You're a, you're a 3L. You've, you're a really impressive guy. Uh, maybe what you're interested in law school and, and what you're interested in doing. Sure. Um, so as John said, I am the new president of, of FedSoc, which has been a great experience so far in my three-day tenure. This summer, I worked at a law firm where I mainly focused on constitutional and administrative issues. Um, I am planning to clerk after I graduate and then hope to continue practicing law at a firm, hopefully back in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. And speaking of new talent, uh, we're really excited to have Kirby West here with us in person. Uh, Kirby is an incredibly talented lawyer. She's an attorney at the Institute for Justice in Washington, D.C. Before joining IJ, she worked at Baker Botts and clerked for Judge Dennis Shedd of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. She earned her J.D. cum laude from Harvard Law School, a place where they notably teach the law. And she served there as an articles editor for the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Kirby, we're so happy to have you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here, though I have to admit I'm a little disappointed to not hear uh, IJ in Rob's future plans as he was one of our our great IJ summer law clerks uh, not too long ago. I appreciate that. Well, <laughs> that maybe, sounds like uh, a return offer to me. I don't, maybe I don't know. down the uh, line once I'm able to pay off my debt, which has, I think, decreased by $10,000 today as we are currently recording on the uh, day of Biden's big executive order announcement about a student debt. Kirby, you were part of the team that just litigated the uh, really noteworthy Carson v. Macon case. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a, a case out of Maine that reached the Supreme Court and decision was handed down earlier this summer uh, about basically uh, school vouchers and, and related deeply to the free exercise clause uh, as to whether the state of Maine could restrict its voucher system against religiously oriented schools. Tell us about that. Tell us about your experience. I mean, first of all, we'll, we'll jump to the doctrine later, but, but what was it like briefing and, and arguing, uh, being a part of a team that, that argued a case before the Supreme Court? Oh, it was so great. I mean, working on working on any case at the Institute for Justice is a great experience. It's a really fun, cool place to be, but obviously a special energy working on a Supreme Court case and, and especially um, on the issue of educational choice, which I just think is one of the most rewarding parts of my job at the Institute for Justice. I really, really enjoy the ed choice cases and 
kind of having seen how the law was developing in this area since 2017, we also kind of went into it feeling pretty optimistic. And so that's a good place to be too when you're litigating a Supreme Court case. So um, it was a great experience in getting to watch uh, my colleague Michael Bendis argue. Um, he did uh, just a fantastic job and it was, yeah, a great, great experience all around. And how has the law regarding educational choice evolved since 2017? Yeah, so I think going it's so interesting now where we're at in educational choice to look back a little bit farther but back to like the early 2000s and think that then it was a question of whether or not this was even permissible under the establishment clause which is just wild to think about now but um, you know, Zelman versus Simmons-Harris, the case that said the Establishment Clause does not prohibit a state from allowing parents to use state funds for private schools and private religious schools. You know, that's kind of recent case law. And we've just had just this massive development since then, um, starting in 2017 with the Trinity Lutheran case, which, of course, said that uh, in a, a a program where the state was giving uh, playground resurfacing materials um, to various groups. They couldn't exclude a daycare center because it was associated with the Trinity Lutheran Church. And then another IJ case followed shortly after, uh, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, where we had a Montana educational choice program that uh, the state's constitutional uh, amendment, a Blaine amendment that prohibited using any of the funds for the choice program at religious schools. Um, the court struck that down under the free exercise clause. Um, and then, you know, that led us to Carson v. Macon, which you think, having described uh, Espinoza, that that would have had already been decided, but it was not. <laughs> I, I think there's so much that's going on in the free exercise doctrine these days, both in terms of school choice, in terms of the ministerial exception, in terms of I mean, other other forms of, of school prayer or, or prayer in public spaces. I, I mean, just this term alone, right? We saw Carson, we saw Kennedy, all within the, the course of, what, two weeks or something like that. Uh, just, just kind of, I don't think they're seismic shifts. I, I think they are part of a, a broader progression as the court tries to figure out exactly where, where it's going in a kind of post-Smith world. But I, I'm kind of curious to hear what you have to say, which is, Kind of what's next? What, what, what's the next frontier now that Carson has established that it's it's a free exercise problem if a state bars religious institutions from benefiting under a school voucher program? Which, by the way, is the opposite conclusion reached by the main attorney general that kind of led to the fact pattern of the case itself. Uh, I'm, I'm just kind of curious what, what, what you think the, the, the next kind of case might look like, if you could choose. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting question. I think the, our focus at the Institute for Justice is pretty limited on the educational choice sphere of this. And this has been the battleground of educational choice for such a long time that we really have been fighting these um, free exercise, this free exercise battle, these religion clauses battle for a long time. And I think we're kind of looking next of like, what is what is the next step in specifically educational choice litigation, um, which I think is a, a separate question from what you asked. But I, I think I say that just to to uh, say I, I'm not as much of an expert as you might have gotten for on on the religion uh, clauses and and future litigation that I, I don't know how much how much will be involved in that um, in future free exercise litigation, but uh, with that that caveat, I think you know you say it's a, a post Smith world. I think how much of a post Smith world are we living in is going to be kind of the next question. I think 
hybrid rights cases under Smith will be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. And, you know, will the court overrule Smith or will the court kind of use this, the hybrid rights language in Smith just to bolster free exercise, the free exercise clause? Um, I think those battles will be more controversial and the outcomes might be more surprising than what we've seen so far. Because as you said, you know, the chief says this a lot, I think, in his writing about things are, you know, obviously we've overruled this case. It's like, well, nobody else knew this. Um, but it, but in the case of the free exercise clause with Trinity Lutheran and with um, Espinoza and with Carson, he says several times, you know, this is unremarkable. This is just saying the government has to be neutral towards religion um, and irreligion. And that's, you know, what these clauses mean. And I think in this case, it's actually true. It is unremarkable. Like this was just the the progress, like the logical progression of saying discrimination against religion is not okay. And the free exercise clause prohibits it. And if you're going to say that with playground resurfacing, and it's also true with schools, and then you can't, and when we get to Carson, you know, you can't split hairs and say, okay, well, it's not okay if you're discriminating against religion because it's a religious organization or institution, but it is okay if it's because they're doing a lot of religious stuff. You know, those arguments are just kind of laughable. And I think it's one instance where it's true, just kind of unremarkable, an unremarkable principle that you can't, the government cannot discriminate against religion. So then at what point can the government still under the Establishment Clause be able to not have to participate in funding religion. I guess the only case that stands at this point on that question is Locke v. Davey, at least in the government's favor. Um, And in the Carson opinion, uh, Chief Justice Roberts tried to distinguish between what was going on in that case where the exception from a scholarship funding program was specifically towards a master's or a uh, bachelor's in devotional theology um, framed as training the clergy, whereas here in Carson, it was just a general religious education. Do you think that that is a difference without a distinction or a a distinction without a difference? Um, Or is there something there that would make it workable to say, well, in this general instance, it is mandatory for the government to fund the religious school if it's going to fund public schools. But in this specific instance of training a clergy, um, they're still exempted. Yeah, I think, so I think to start, it's important to realize just how narrow Davey, Lockby Davey was. So Joshua Davey under the program could have gone to a religious school. He could have taken classes in devotional theology. He could have used like all of this that we've, that we discussed in Carson about religious use and religious instruction. He could have had pervasively religious instruction um, with this program without issue. It was just specifically to pursue the degree in devotional theology, so to become a clergy, uh, to become a member of the clergy, essentially. And I think, so I think your question is, there's like two ways of thinking about it. It's it's the question of what what is there left of the play in, play in the joints that they said in Locke v. Davey um, between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And the way that I think the dissenting justices in uh, Carson v. Macon think about that is, the play in the joints means what can a state do that is 
specifically targeted at religion or specifically targeted at limiting state funding of religion, that is still acceptable. And if that's the way that you're looking at the question, I think that they're right. It's basically just Lock v. Davey right now, at least with the current court. Um, and I think if I had to say, I think Lock v. Davey was wrongly decided, but I don't think it's insane to take it to look at it as specifically giving state money to a member of the clergy or an aspiring member of the clergy to become a clergyman, um, that there's a substantial historical interest against doing that. I don't think that that history is crazy or it's crazy to say that. I think it's probably wrong, but um, as being the case that's the last one of, okay, the the state can prohibit this um, doesn't strike me as totally insane. But I think that the better way to look at it is when the court was talking about the play in the joints in Locke v. Davey, what the court said is what state action does the establishment clause is, is not um, prohibited by the establishment clause or mandated by the free exercise clause? And the answer to that is really simple. It's do you want to have a program in the first place? So in the case of the state of Maine, Do you want to allow families to choose any private school to send their children to? Or in Montana, do you want to allow families to choose any school to send their child to? The state by no means has to do that. No state has to adopt a educational choice program. I wish they all would. I think it's a great policy choice, but the Constitution certainly doesn't mandate it. Um, And similarly, in a case like Shirtliff, the city doesn't have to allow any group to use the the flagpole to to have a flag raised. Um, And so I think that that's a better way of looking at the play in the joints is like, does the state want to have the program in the first place? And that's a choice they can make. But once the state decides to have a program, it can't say, okay, and now everybody except the religious people get to use this program. This is not really a question, Curry, but but definitely a, a thought that as you were speaking came to mind. We talk about play in the joints as it relates to the uh, for, for the uninitiated, it, it's the slippage or or the the kind of tension between the establishment clause and the free exercise clause, which is to say that that the state can't inhibit the free exercise of religion, but also it can't itself create an establishment of religion. But there's also a kind of play in the joints in the way we're talking about it between, which I think you alluded to, the free exercise um, religious education supporters and school choice, school voucher supporters. And I guess this is more of a thought about policy, but the way that people often think about it, especially Americans who live in cities, are you live uh, in the the Philadelphia suburbs, like where I'm from, and and there are lots of schools that you could choose to go to. You could go to Lower Marion High School, which is a terrific high school. You could go to the local friend's school. You could go to a local private non-denominational school that just teaches in a particular style. And so to people in that frame of reference, the question becomes kind of strange in Carson v. Macon because why would you have to specifically choose a religious institution? So the fact pattern of Carson, which I think a lot of people don't realize, is really an interesting policy question because the whole reason why Maine created this program in the first place is they simply do not have sufficient public schools to conveniently send children to a nearby school. And so I think there's actually a really serious policy implication here beyond the free exercise rights of, of the individuals, which are certainly important and, and in some ways paramount. But there's also an important policy question, and I think related to your interest in, in, in school choice 
place, which is a lot of families in in Portland and all, and all over Maine have a real tough spot if they can't send their children to a school that is either nominally or or slightly religious in nature. You know, they teach nine classes, one of which is a Bible class or something like that. And if the state of Maine is allowed to discriminate on the basis of that one Bible class, uh, then those families have to send their kids hours away to school as opposed to the school down the street. And there's a serious, I guess, policy component in the way that it affects people's lives. That is part of, I think, the school choice movement that is, that is kind of separate and, and distinct from the free exercise clause and constitutional interpretation, neither of which are are, are, are better or worse, but they're certainly different. I think, I think as you're talking, it comes out that there is actually a serious play in the joints here in terms of, kind of there's a policy component and a, and a constitutional law component, both of which are important in thinking about and realizing how, how rightly decided Carson v. Macon was. Yeah, definitely. And I think the facts in Carson v. Macon are really interesting in that regard that like this, there, so as a background, since I don't think we covered it, the program, it's not a traditional voucher program. It's, there are many schools in Maine, which is obviously a very rural state. There are many school districts that just do not operate a public high school. And this, they still have a statutory obligation to provide a public education to, or provide an education to students at that age group. And not every school district has chosen to do this, but what many school districts have chosen to do is provide tuition to a family, to the school of a family's choice. That can be literally any school or prior to the decision in Carson v. Macon. It could be literally any school. Um, it could be Miss Porter's. Uh, it could be a private school in the state of California, which some kids have chosen. Um, it could be, you know, it doesn't have to have curricular requirements that match Maine's public education. Um, it can be single sex education, which obviously the Maine public education could not be. Literally, the only standard was it can't be a religious school. And and so, as you said, yeah, it really, in such a rural area, it really limits the options of parents when you do that. And you say, oh, well, if you can afford to board your kid at this extremely fancy school and send them um, to do that, well, you know, you can take advantage of the program. But if you want to send them to the Catholic school down the street or the Jewish J school around the corner, sorry, you're out of luck. Um, you're going to have to keep looking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and the facts are, I think, particularly compelling that these a lot of these religious schools exist because there is not an alternative. Um, and it, it provides a great resource to families, both religious and non-religious. On the topic of school choice from a more policy standpoint, would you say that coming off of COVID and how much COVID has altered schooling um, with all the restrictions and at-home learning for all students, would you say that that gave a real thrust to the school choice movement? Yes, definitely. Um, in so many ways. I think you're seeing a lot of parents who are extremely frustrated with like the school shutdowns and frustrated with how long it took for schools to figure out, public schools to figure out how to educate kids in, in an admittedly very difficult situation. But um, the influence of the teachers' unions in keeping schools closed, I think there's a lot of frustration at the practical like fact that schools were closed for a really long time and it had a negative impact on kids. But also parents kind of got a peek into what their kids were learning in public schools, which was not always what they wanted to see or not always impressive. Um, and on a more positive angle of it, I think COVID also showed us that not one one form of education doesn't necessarily work for every kid. And in with the technological developments that we have, we can really craft 
educations that are specific to different kids and, you know, hybrid of electronic learning and in-person learning. Um, and I think we've, I'm, I'm hoping that this will continue, that we've seen finally some innovation in this, in the educational sphere, which has been lacking for so long because, you know, we haven't had educational choice. It has been so dominated by public education. Um, and so I think for both positive and negative reasons, there's just a huge demand right now among parents for more educational freedom and the ability to send their kids to other schools. And and we're seeing, you know, a lot of positive things come out of that, like the Arizona has recently um, adopted a a pretty wide-ranging um, educational choice program that's, that's wonderful. And other states are following suit and adopting various different kinds of choice programs. So I do think it's, I think it's a, hopefully we're on the, the brink of a golden age of educational choice reforms. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that you hear about areas and different states instituting these programs are, actually, it's a pretty nonpartisan issue. I, I think you see, I mean, the, the probably most famous example of a successful school choice movement was Success Academy Charter Schools by Eva Moskowitz, who, who is, I think, a, a great figure, but but that notwithstanding, also also a registered Democrat. Uh, and you see the experience in California have gone extremely well, a pretty liberal state. And, and so I, I think it's quite interesting to see how the politics don't exactly map onto what is otherwise an extre- extremely divisive climate in the United States of America. I think I think parents recognize what's good for them, what works for them, and what's good for their children. And I think that COVID especially has forced a lot of parents to engage with their children and, and take a more active role in their education because it was necessary. And not because they were worse before or better now, but just because the nature of Zoom schooling required people to be more involved. And they've seen, I think, then and, and maybe since to some degree, the desire for more flexibility. And that, yeah. that, that does, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you vote blue or red. If your kid is getting a better education at the Quaker school down the street, you're going to want that rather than, than than being forced into an option that's not as good. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, I mean, you've just exactly nailed why I love working on our ed choice cases so much. Because I think just as from the policy side of things, there are a lot of, you know, I work at the Institute for Justice, there are a lot of liberty advancing policies that I'm very confident are better for society and better for everybody. But it can take a long time to both implement them and then see the effects of the implementation of like, okay, if we can, you know, you know, reduce fines and fees or, or do these various different things. Like it can take time to implement and see how this has affected people on the ground. With educational choice, you know, our clients have kids whose lives will be changed tomorrow if we win. You know, like they, they, they can get in if you enact an educational choice program, the effect is immediate. These kids who were in failing schools can immediately move to schools where their whole future, their whole trajectory is just totally changed overnight. It's just such a a powerful thing. And um it's really inspiring to work on behalf of our clients who are their parents who are fighting for that for them and understandably just so incredibly dedicated and motivated to change things for their kids and and for other families as well. So unfortunately, the fight for school choice in my home state of Massachusetts was a bit more partisan. So I think it was 2016. It could have been two years before or after that. But we had a ballot referendum on whether to open, I think, 12 more charter schools in the state. And it actually failed mainly because of a large campaign by the teachers' unions to say that school choice is bad, charter schools are bad, and what this will do is take funding away from the public schools, the district schools, and give it to these charter schools. Uh, is, is that not the case? 
That is not the case. Um, you know, that is what you hear from the teachers unions all the time, that public schools are going to lose funding. Um, it's just not what the data shows. I mean, publics, the amount of resources dedicated to public schools has unsurprisingly just continued to increase over the last several decades at pretty high rates. And we don't see the kind of warned about like, oh, these, you know, the public schools are going to lose all their money if if you let parents take their kids out of them. But setting that aside also, it's like, okay, but why do the parents want to take their kids out of the public schools, right? It's like, you, and I think this is something that proponents of school choice say a lot, but, you know, wealthy families already have school choice. If they're in a district with a bad school, then they don't send their kid to that school. And so when you're saying like, oh, no, no, we need to keep these kids in these bad schools because otherwise these bad schools will lose money, what you're really saying is, we need to keep these families that can't afford to take their kids out of these failing schools. We need to force them to stay in the failing schools because otherwise the failing schools will lose money, um, which, again, it's not true. But also just the whole premise of the argument is like, no, no, we need to sacrifice these kids to these failing schools um, and not give their families an option because we want to keep the failing school. Um, you know, it's just it's not a particularly compelling argument, I think. But but as you said, the I mean, I also see educational choice as a bipartisan issue, and it certainly is. If you look at who's fighting for educational choice, it is not specific to any, you know, it, it crosses party lines, it crosses socioeconomic lines, it crosses racial lines. It's really, you know, it can be a very unifying issue. But I think, I can't remember what his position was with the National Education Association, but a leader of the National Education Association very famously said, you know, after Zelman v. Simmons-Harris, that state constitutions are full of Mickey Mouse provisions that we can use to uh, challenge educational choice programs. As long as there's teachers unions, there's going to be opposition to educational choice. Um, that's just a fact. And so I think there will always be work for people <laughs> like us at uh, the Institute for Justice and other people who are fighting for educational choice to you know, continue to to advocate for families. Yeah, I, I mean, to, to get my my piece in, uh, as I said, Kirby, it's, it's really, you know, the, the current situation is, is an embodiment of, of a phrase that anybody who's ever owned uh, bad property or an old car is, and it's throwing good money after bad. You know, I, I think Milton Friedman, this is probably the second or third time he's been cited on this podcast, but he pointed out that, that U.S. funding across the country on public schools, and this was probably about 50 years ago, is something like three quarters of all money spent on restaurants, uh, shopping, and consumption, which is to say for that amount of spending, we should probably be getting a much better return on investment than we already are, whereas charter schools do incredibly well in terms of raising test scores, leading to, to higher education outcomes, professional outcomes that really serve people. And, and the, the incredible thing is, as much as, as uh, the Democratic Party in this case happens to be interested in, in helping individuals, and I think today, for example, as Rob pointed out, forgiving student loan debt, the policies they then go and pursue as a national party are, I think, antithetical to that insofar as canceling $10,000 of student loan debt is an ultra-aggressive policy when it comes to, to taxation-related policy. Something like 40% of student loan debt is held by top quartile households. I think two-thirds is held by top quartile and upper-middle-class uh, upper families, whereas school choice programs do the most for, for low-income and disadvantaged families that really have truly no other option but to attend uh, the school that they are districted for. And if you give them the opportunity, they will 
know what's good for them and they will know what's good for their money. And, and giving them those vouchers gives them access to educational opportunities, professional opportunities, and communities that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And if that's not kind of the most important thing that one can do to give somebody a fair start in the race of life, I'm not really sure what else would be. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And it's why I feel so passionately about the issue. I mean, I am in no way hostile to public education. I was public school educated, K through 12, and honest in you know rural Pennsylvania. And some of the best teachers of my entire academic career, including law school, were from my public school in rural Pennsylvania. I had wonderful teachers at a great public school experience, but that's not everybody's experience. And if you are in a place where you don't have access to a quality education um, and you don't have the means to get out of that failing public school, you don't have the means to go somewhere else. I mean, it's just a really devastating thing to say to a child, like, no, sorry, you have to suck it up and stay here. I also went to public K-12 um, and was fortunate enough to be in a, a district that really cared about its students. Um, but it's it's true, actually, that our funding per student was under the state median. And so Massachusetts didn't have any school choice, um, and it really didn't have many opportunities besides paying exorbitant fees for for a private schools than uh, going to the a district school. But as we've said, it seems like the political process is challenged by the holdout of the teachers' unions and the strength of that lobby. So in what ways have parents through IJ pursued legal strategies to try to increase access to school choice? Yeah, so educational choice is an interesting area of work for us in that we're often on the other side of the table from where we usually are because at the Institute for Justice we're usually – suing the government over the bad stuff that the government is doing to people. And there is no shortage of that work, let me tell you. We could do another podcast about all that stuff. But um, in the educational choice sphere, typically, you know, the Institute for Justice does, you know, advocate for school choice policies. But primarily what we will do is defend um, school choice programs that already exist once they've been challenged in litigation. And it's an interesting question because right now I don't know what the next legal strategies will be because we've had – you know, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but such a definitive victory with Carson v. Macon. And as I said, it was really the battleground for a long time um, in in this sphere. And so it, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the next challenges to educational choice programs are. One that I foresee is states saying, using their constitutional guarantees of a public education to just say, oh, actually, you know, you can't have any kind of educational choice program. You can't give parents choice at all because we have a guarantee of providing only public education. And so, you know, we're not, we're not going to, that's impermissible under our, um, under our state constitution. I don't think that's compelling because, um, as you know, I think the Arizona, Arizona Supreme Court has said this, these programs are giving a benefit to families, not to religious schools, right? Like that's, Again, part of the the reason that um, the dissenters and, and Carson, I think, just get it so wrong is that they're saying, oh, you're forcing the state to give money to religious schools. It's like, no, 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 the state is giving money to families who are choosing religious schools. And in no other sphere do we find that just, like, shocking and reprehensible, right? Like, if you get uh, – if somebody, 
you know, chose to use their stimulus check to give it to their church, you wouldn't think, oh my gosh, wow, this is just crazy. The government is supporting religion. Or, you know, if you used Medicaid at a religious hospital or something like that, like none of those things are shocking to us. Um, And it's, you know, based on individual choice to use your benefit that you receive as a family or as a child at a a religious school. But I can see that being possibly a, a next kind of legal challenge. But We'll we'll see. I think that's going to be the next couple of years. We're going to start to see what are the uh, the next legal challenges to educational choice programs. Kirby, I, I wanted to ask kind of a, a unrelated question, and this is because the podcast is listened to by a lot of law students interested about career choices and the different kinds of things one can do with with their JD. Uh, I, I was as we were talking, realized that the three of us are all from Commonwealths, which is a bit strange. You and I are from Pennsylvania, Rob from Massachusetts. Obviously, I'm a partisan for the Keystone Commonwealth, I guess. But that has to do with the common good in, in some ways, not not in a legal way, but, but just you know, in the meaning of the word. And uh, you, you're now a, a very accomplished public interest lawyer. And you you went to Harvard Law School and did incredibly well there. You, you started off at a, at a big law firm. I'm just curious to hear about how your career has been different over those experiences, what you valued in each place, how you've come to where you are. You know, any advice for law students interested in public interest work, uh, either either during their summers or, or their early career? Yeah, well, I live in another Commonwealth now too. I'm in Virginia, so uh, we're keeping the trend. But um, this is an open invite to anybody <laughs> from, from the Commonwealth of Kentucky to, to come to the podcast. Um, I just feel so lucky to be a public interest lawyer, and specifically to be a lawyer at the Institute for Justice. I am uh, kind of an IJ true believer. Like I went to law school because I wanted to work at the Institute for Justice, and I had a great experience with my clerkship. I think if you are interested in litigating, clerk like clerking is just a great thing to do. I, Rob, I think you're going to love it. It's really helpful to see how judges think, how courts operate, um, give you some practical experience before you start your career as a litigator to see kind of behind the scenes. My time at Baker Botts was also great. I, you know, I worked with some great people, um, but the goal was always to be a public interest lawyer and specifically to be a public interest lawyer at the Institute for Justice, which could have gone really terribly for me if I got there and hated it. But luckily, um, it's really lived up to uh, to what I had hoped. And just working with people who um, everybody's there because they care very deeply about the work that we're doing, and we also, I think, our our hiring team does a really good job of only hiring people who are like nice and good to work with. And so it's just a really positive environment. It's a great place to come up as a young lawyer. You get a lot of experience early on. And I think this is true across public interest law, especially as compared to big law. Um, You have the opportunity to really dig into some pretty big substantive things right away, um, which is just super rewarding and a great educational experience. I think it can take longer in big law, obviously, because, you know, you're getting paid tons and tons of money by your clients and they want partners working on the big things. They want the partners to be the ones in court. At at IJ, and I think a lot of public interest places are like this, the cases are very leanly staffed. It's two or three lawyers. So like, if there's something that needs doing on the case, you're doing it. It doesn't matter how recently you started there. But public interest law just generally... Um, you know, a lot of lawyers don't like their jobs, and we all do. At IJ, like, everybody really loves their job, and it's because we get to generally wake up in the morning and sue the government. That's pretty cool. Um, but also just, you know, our clients are inspirational. They all are kind of fighting a battle um, based on principle, not just based on an outcome that they want for themselves. Um, and it's really inspiring to be around people like that all the time. 
Are there any IJ cases that you're working on right now or upcoming for next term that you're particularly excited about? Um, I have a couple. So we have a civil forfeiture class action in Detroit um, that's kind of heating up a little bit right now that I'm excited about. Well, part of that will be going up on appeal to an interlocutory appeal to the Sixth Circuit, the issue of um, is there a right to a prompt post-seizure hearing after your car has been taken through civil forfeiture? Uh, I think that's going to be really exciting. I have a, another class action in Chicago about their vehicle impound system that is outrageous and, you know, sucks up a lot of innocent people and their car, you know, they can't afford to get their cars back, um, which is a a great case. I do, so outside of the educational choice work that I do, I do a lot of property rights cases. So um, those are both kind of under, under that sphere. But yeah, there's always, there's always cool things. At at IJ generally, not that I'm working on, but our project on immunity and accountability is somewhat new and, um, you know, fighting against qualified immunity and other immunity doctrines. uh, That's super exciting work kind of, you know, very topical. It's in the news all the time right now. And also just, uh, I think kind of across public interest law would be (laughs) useful if we could, you know, get rid of some of these made up doctrines that prevent you from vindicating your rights when they're violated. Kirby, this has been an excellent conversation. Uh, We we have so much to talk about. We could probably stay here for hours, but uh, I'll just say now, thank you so much for joining us and, and, and making this first episode of the season so special. Thank you so much for having me.